This week, we're kicking off a brand new series called Who We Are. Turn to your neighbor and say, Who We Are. Who we are, we're going through our 15 fluencies. These are sort of the core documents of who we long to be as a faith church, faith family, as a church family. These are our, we used to call them our uh, core documents or our, our vision statement. Um, and we changed that core values because we actually don't just want to intellectually assent to these ideals. Our dream, like a language, is that we could grow increasingly fluent in these areas to the point that they just kind of flow out of us, and we're no longer processing bilingually, we're just flowing, because we've learned to be fluent. And so each week, over the next 15 weeks, we will cover one of these fluencies. Last week, we talked about, uh, tossed out this premise, until I connect with God, everything else is a distraction, thank you. We talked about how we want to be those that seek God. We seek him first and we seek him most. This week, I want to piggyback on this ideal, asking the question, if the call of Jesus is to seek first God's kingdom, how do we become people that are fluent in doing exactly that? How does God seeking become a language that naturally flows out of us, that effortlessly permeates and saturates every aspect of our lives? If you've ever struggled with prayer, I'm hoping this message helps. So why don't you stand your feet with me as we get ready to read and honor God's word. College students, what's up, Nova? It's great to have you back. FIU representing, it's great to have you back with us. I can't even talk about the Miami Dolphins because what are you going to say? What are you going to say? I don't want to hear it, Brandon, the Jets fan. I don't want to hear it. I want to hear it. Let's just talk about God. I'm too depressed to talk about football. All right. Jesus is having a dialogue with the religious and spiritual leaders of his time period. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he gets into this interesting conversation with one of the experts. It says the law, but that's the Jewish law or the Torah. It says this in Mark 12. And one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. Go figure, if you are the word, it typically makes you pretty good with words. He asked him of all the commandments, which... Yeshua, Jesus, teacher, rabbi, is the most important. Jesus responded, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this is nothing new. This is called, in Hebrew, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. It's one of the most popular and the bedrock of the Jewish faith and tradition forever. And then he expounds on it. And you should love the Lord your God with all your, well, read it with me, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself there is no commandment greater than these well said teacher the man replied you were right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices and when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely he said to him you are not far from the kingdom of God. By the way, what a cool moment. You talk about a highlight moment in your life. Jesus the Lord says to you, hey, you're on the right track. Lord, would you say that and speak to us this morning? From then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we would love to be on the right track. We would love to find ourselves in the space of this man where you say, man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Lord, we want to find ourselves smack dab in the middle of your will, your glory, your kingdom. 
because it's what we were designed for. So help us out, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five as you find your seat. Something is happening. Something is happening. Uh, maybe you can help me out with this. Uh, something's happening. The gyms are packed. Meal subscription plans are skyrocketing. People are not eating sugar. You can't even drive on the road. People are running. From what? I don't know. I don't understand it. They're biking. When they have perfectly good vehicles, something is happening. Can you help me understand, church? New Year's resolutions. Last week, we talked about the heartbreaking reality that we've all experienced. This could be group therapy, y'all. Why can't we stick with these things? It's so hard, right? Last week, I tossed out the premise that I don't think it's that we don't mean it. Often we haven't shifted fundamental structures or rhythms of our life, and so because our rhythms don't change, our life doesn't change. Our habits don't change, which means our life doesn't change, right? I'm convinced it's not because we don't mean it, but I think Jesus, the genius communicator, gives us a window into human development. It's not because we don't mean it. I think it's because we don't love it. Now track with me here. No one starts a diet and they get on the track and they're like, man, thank God, because I just hate dessert. Right? What we're trying to do when it comes to New Year's resolutions is we are trying to harness the, the power of willpower. Everybody say willpower. What we are doing with New, resolution, New Year's resolutions is saying, I have not been doing this thing because I don't actually like it, but I'm deciding that I'm going to do it anyways. Grit your teeth and bear it. And so we start out with these great intentions and we're like, I hate this, but I'm going to do it. And that works for a solid month, historically. Right? I don't think it's because we don't mean it. I think it's because we don't love it. What's up with Jesus when he's given an opportunity to synthesize the totality of God's words and precepts to mankind, he sums it all up in one word, really. Love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Most of our New Year's resolutions, most of our well-intentioned aims and ambitions at the beginning of this year are birthed and poorly sustained through willpower where we're trying to get ourselves to do something that we don't actually want to do or even like. But where there is no love, there's no transformation. When you really love something, you really don't have to be told to do it, right? When you really love something, when you really love a person, there's these intrinsic drivers that kick in, that push and propel you towards the thing. No one is having to push you in that direction. You're like, man, try to stop me, right? When you really love something, there's very little of any external motivation needed. It's not functioning off of willpower. You are functioning off of love. So the deeper question becomes, what does it mean to truly, deeply, genuinely love something or someone? 
or to bring it into the practical, what are those internal drivers that keep us going? Why do some people go to the gym every day? And most don't. Why do some people stay together for 60 years of marriage and most don't? Why do some people excel at their career while others with the same amount of skill or ability don't? Or to bring it spiritual, why do some people seem to follow and be so easily fluent at God-seeking and others don't? Both go to church. Both are Christians. But some flourish and thrive and incorporate into a fluency and others What's the difference? And I think Jesus, as the master teacher rabbi, is giving a robust and genius answer to this conundrum. Are you ready to dive into the scriptures? Let's do it. Point number one, I just want to unpack what Jesus lays out as a premise. If we are endeavoring to make it in this life and fulfill the call and the destiny that God has for us online in Guyana, here in the room, it starts like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. I love Nancy. So you're like, who is that? That's my wife. Good. Okay. I love her. She's amazing. We've been married now over 11 years, and I mean, she, this woman is like fine wine. Like, she just keeps getting better. She's incredible. Like, she's an incredible disciple. She's an incredible disciple maker. She's a great leader. Like, I, I deeply love Nancy. I really do. Like, she's one of my best friends. I enjoy spending time with her. I think she's funny. I think she's quirky. I think she's cool. I think she's hot. I think she's great. I love Nancy. We spent a bunch of time together. We, we had a couple that we really admired early on in our dating relationship when I was trying to convince her to marry me and, and the devil had blinded her to God's will for her life that was standing before her. And uh, it was the devil, y'all. And, and we had this couple that we really looked up to and, and we're like, man, well, you guys are, are incredible. Like, what? And they're like, honestly, we got one piece of advice for you. Date night. Every single week, without fail, do it. And so since we've been dating and God opened her eyes to the Lord's will standing before her, we have been doing date night for 12 plus years now from even before we got married. And every single week, it's amazing. I mean, this isn't the point of the sermon, but married people or dating people or engaged people, y'all jot this one down. I'm telling you, date night is the life hack if you want your marriage to work for the long haul. Why? Because it serves as a stopgap for relational friction. Meaning, if you're mad at one another, I know that, you know, because I made a mistake because Nancy's perfect, right? If you're mad at one another, you can only be mad for a week until you sit awkwardly at your pre-planned date night and finally someone's like, okay, let's talk about it. And you get there. Like date night has served as this stopgap for friction and this place to ongoingly update our love maps of one another. So I'm not working off loving Nancy who she was 10 years ago. I'm actively learning her in the moment and developing new skills and abilities to love who she is now, not who she just used to be. Come on, somebody. That was good, y'all. That was better than, than y'all are saying. But imagine, imagine, if I stood before you and I was like, man, I love Nancy. I love my wife. We got these two little Jew-Rican babies. They're awesome. I'm Jewish. She's Puerto Rican, Jew-Rican. We got these two little Jew-Rican. Man, I love Nancy. And then, and I'm like, man, but I, you know how it is as a pastor, man. Life is just so busy. We don't really get to hang out. Like, That's weird. And I was like, no, actually, you know, I, I sent the family on vacation. Man, I just got stuff I got to do, y'all. I just sent the family on vacation. Because, but, man, I love Nancy. But I, I can't really go. I had to send them off on vacation. 
I was like, man, you know, like, why don't you come over to microchurch, but um, I, I, I don't have time to be there. Nancy actually runs our mi- microchurch by herself because I can't really spend that much time with her. But and, uh, eventually you would realize, John, I know you're saying you love Nancy, but you don't spend any time with Nancy. So you would have the awkward moment of, a, I'm sorry, pastor, br- brother. You either are not self-aware enough to realize you do not actually love Nancy as you say, or your love is exceptionally shallow. But you, because you can't deeply love someone in an ongoing way that you do not spend consistent and abiding time with, right? It's a relationship. Hence, Jesus begins with this clear call. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Your time will follow your love. You just need to track it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. You're like, what is the heart biblically speaking? Jesus lays out this multifaceted framework for holistic love of God, which is what we were designed for. The word heart in the original biblical language is cardias. Everybody say cardias. It denotes one's character, inner self, will, or intention, our desire and decisions that make us who we are, the effective center of our being, and the capacity of moral preference and volitional desire or choice. It's the desire producer that makes us tick. Vine's expository dictionary, a Bible dictionary, describes it like this. It says, the word heart came to stand for man's entire mental and moral activity, including emotions, reason, or will. God is not just saying, love the Lord with your biological ticker. He's saying, love the Lord your God with every aspect and fiber of your being. We love the Lord God with all our heart when our desire and decision is to love him exclusively and above all else. Loving God with our heart means we make the choice and the decision to follow him. And so as we approach this 21 days of consecration and and as we're about to begin this Wednesday, the 10 days of prayer and fasting that culminate our time together, I want to bring it to this now reality. Part of loving the Lord your God with all your heart means that you have to make the decision as we come upon this fast to sacrifice food and substitute for prayer. Now let's just be honest, how many of you have a hard time with fasting? I know I'm a pastor, but that like does not magically happen, okay? I like to eat. I like food. I do not willingly walk in like, man, you know what I'm looking forward to? No food. I don't. I know some of you are like, I'm disappointed in my pastor. Okay, well, that stinks. Welcome to Greenhouse. Fasting is a challenge for me. Fasting is difficult. Fasting is hard because what fasting means, by the way, fasting is not just saying no to food. Fasting is subtracting food and adding additional time with God, okay? If it's just subtraction, that's not fasting. That's called dieting, y'all. Fasting, I I just want to be clear. Fasting equals subtraction, Food plus addition, prayer, equals fasting. All right, there's some good fasting math for y'all. I hope that sticks with you. Uh, Here's why I personally, John the person, the disciple, not just John the pastor, here's why personally John the person who struggles and is challenged by fasting still does it. Because it works. Because I've done it, and in the miserable, that's not a word, in the misery, that's a word, in the misery of the moment, God's just inexplicably there 
in a way that feels more pronounced, more poignant, where I'm more aware. And in my weakness, go figure, it's almost like a Bible verse, he is strong. Here's why I fast. Because when I respond to Jesus's invitation, who, by the way, said of his disciples, and when you fast, not if, when you fast, not if you fast, not if you so happen to be so spiritual that you fast, when you fast, disciples of Jesus, when I do it, I experience him in a way that's absolutely life-changing. So as a result, I make the decision, the cardia, heart decision, will, emotion, volitional decision to allow my flesh to die a little bit in fasting so my spirit can connect to God on a deeper level. So I want to ask you before moving on, and really this, the majority of this sermon is personal application and reflection as we get ready to enter into this time. I do not want us stumbling into this time haphazardly of consecration, prayer, and fasting. I want us to have a moment where we can collectively look internally and ask God. So I want to ask you personally, are you willing to make the cardia, the heart decision, to forego food starting Wednesday and spend the time that you would have been eating with God instead? over the next 10 days. It could be a meal. It could be a meal every day. It could be multiple meals. It could be culminating in extended time. It could, be, it could look like lots of things, but specifically in this regard, I'm asking about food and there are dietary restrictions and if you've got certain health conditions, talk to your doctor and be wise and all of those caveats, all right? Amen and yes to all that stuff. What I'm asking is if you are physically able, are you willing to make that cardia heart decision and go for it? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. When we love God with all of our heart, we experience a fidelity and an increased sense of his presence because he rewards those who diligently seek him. But this is where the genius of Jesus comes into play. If we only love God with our hearts, we can experience a loveless and superficial relationship based simply off of volitional decision, and willpower. The heart is not the only element. Jesus wants our love to be fully integrated with our entire being, hence he expands the call. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. What is the soul, biblically speaking? This word in the original language is sukai. Everybody say sukai. Y'all are getting all cultured here with these languages. Uh, the other way of saying it would be sukai obviously sounds like psyche. It is the soul, the affection, the will, the breath and gift of life that God breathed that is an eternal part of each individual human. Like the heart, the soul represents the inner immaterial part of a human that is separate from the physical body. Now there's some nuance here and there's some overlap obviously in what Jesus is saying, but Jesus, the master communicator, uses this multifaceted approach to love for a reason, right? To love the Lord with all your soul means that we find our satisfaction in him more than any other person or thing. In Mark 8, Jesus says this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. Here it is. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can a person, a man or a woman, give in exchange for their soul? 
Jesus is making the point that our sukai, our soul, is not edified or built or fueled by worldly things, hence the ability to gain the whole world and everything this world has to offer and still lose the most important component of who we are, our very soul. Jesus is making the point that you can have all of the worldly pleasures, you can have the wealth, you can have the status, the success, the clout, sex, money, all of that rock and roll this world can give you. Is that like something from the 70s? Where did that come from? You can have all of that stuff, but it does not nourish or activate your soul. Many of us have tried and felt this, right? Can I get an amen to this statement? Like, you got that promotion that you've always been hoping for, and you're like, ah, I didn't do it. And you got that relationship that you've always been dreaming for, and ah, I didn't do it. Because you can gain the whole world, but what would it profit if you lose your soul? Now, there are certainly pleasures in this life, and there are places in, of satisfaction, and every good and perfect gift has come from God, and he's given us things to enjoy, but Jesus is reminding us here that your deepest, most intimate, eternal satisfaction can only be found in him. So again, and maybe even close your eyes for this time, just to help you focus a little bit internally. I want to stop before moving on from this point and ask you personally, during this fasting time starting Wednesday, are you willing to lay aside temporary and earthly satisfactions to pursue the greater satisfaction found in Jesus? It might mean things like getting off social media. It might mean unfollowing or turning off your notifications. It might mean not Googling info on your favorite sports team every single day, John. It might mean... Not sleeping in that extra hour like you heard this morning so you could find satisfaction in pursuing God corporately at Tuesday morning prayer at 6.30 a.m. It might mean a lot of things. Are you willing to lean in and do it? You can open your eyes. When we love God with all of our soul, we experience intimate connection and wonder. That itch that we can't seem to scratch in the earthly stuff, all of a sudden that imagination is awakened. But when we only love God with our soul, we can experience a shallow and fickle love. If you only love God, if we only love God with our soul and it's not integrated with the other elements that Jesus advocates, then our love for God will remain shallow and immature where we only love God when we are actually feeling the satisfaction. You ever struggle with that? You ever been there? You ever wonder like, man, when things are great, God and I are great, but when things are hard, yes, that's probably because your love is focused majority or exclusively in the soul quadrant, which is why loving God with our soul must be tethered to loving God with our mind. How many of you are more intellectually wired as people? All right, a few of y'all. How many of you are glad that God sees you? And he's like, yeah, that's important too. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul. Not just emotions, but your mind. What is the mind, biblically speaking? It's this word in the original language, dianoia, dianoia. It means your understanding, your intellect, your mind, your insight. The word, the word literally means in the original language, thought reasoning. Loving the Lord your God literally with your critical thinking skills with your thought 
reasoning. Apparently, this is important to God for holistic love, incorporating both sides of the matter to reach a meaningful, personal conclusion. Our mind, it's the faculty, according to the original language, it's the faculty of our understanding. It's what enables us to imagine, think, and reason. When we love God, as Jesus called us to with all of our mind, we make the conscious choice to obey his every command, even when we are not feeling it. Even when we don't sense the satisfaction of the soul in that given moment. This is echoed throughout the scriptures, Romans 10, Romans 12, I'm sorry. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, read it with me, but be transformed by the renewing of your Mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. First Peter, he picks up the same refrain. He says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Christ Jesus is revealed. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And finally, in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. I started thinking this week of this old hymn that was impactful and meaningful at the beginning of my journey with Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. He decidido seguir a Cristo. No vuelvo atrás. Is that it? I remember singing this, and it was just like, I, I, sometimes I felt it, but it was most helpful when I didn't, but I had sung it enough that I'm like, no, I've, yeah, I've decided. What is that? It's loving the Lord with all your, your mind. I have decided, let me ask you, during this 10-day period of fasting, beginning on Wednesday, are you willing to give God daily time as an act of obedience. We've talked about food. We've talked about removing distractions. Now let's talk about an addition. Are you willing to give God additional time? This is something you need to think through. This is one of the reasons I love Jesus and his approach to life and spirituality. Jesus did not just try to get people in the soul emotions of the moment. He did not just try to get people in their emotional state. Jesus actually told people things like, hey, hey, I know you really like me. I know I just feed, I fed a bunch of people taking Starkist and turning it into like Moby Dick. I know it looks really, I know I just healed grandma. She's doing the moonwalk. I know it looks really exciting right now, but pause. I don't know where any of that came from. Pause and count the cost. This is what Jesus would say to people. Take a moment and count the cost. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't just want you to love, I don't just want your love in the heart, soul, and emotions category. I actually want you to love me with your mind. This takes a legitimate counting of the cost. In the room, over in Guyana, watching online, you actually have to pause, and I'm asking you to do it right now. Are you willing to make the conscious choice to obey and abide, to give up other things, especially in this season of consecration, prayer, and fasting, to have more time with Jesus. When you love God with all your mind, you ask good questions. You ask hard questions. Questions like, is he really the Lord? I, I, know, I know we say in Christendom, like, have you, have you confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I know we get up in every award show. It's like, I like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like, amen. Is he? Is he? 
When we love God with our mind, it brings about an appropriate and divinely guided introspection where we ask questions like, I know I say it, I think I believe it, do I actually live it? Meaning, if, if someone were to look at my life from the outside, is it clearly evident that I have loved God with my mind enough to... Pro- Charles Humble, is that you? Come on, Charles. Welcome back, bro. Love you, man. Anyways, it means that we love... I'm just... My mind, you know, is all over the place, but I'm back. It means that we love God enough with our mind to say, if someone looked at my life, would they be able to tell that I have intellectually and thoroughly processed through my decision, and it is evidenced in the way that I spend my time, energy, resources, and lifestyle? Is Jesus the Lord... Or is he like the mascot on your sports team that just goes out there as a token, but he actually doesn't have any real authority? Drop the mic. I almost literally dropped it. That would have been bad. <laughs> Loving God with your mind means you're circumspect to see if your life matches your words. If you were to consider that question, and your answer is maybe, or if you were courageous enough, no, but you'd like it to be yes, welcome to Greenhouse. We'd love to help you. We exist to help ordinary people become passionate followers of Jesus. Like all of us, like get out of bed, roll out of bed, say, oh God, here we go again, out of bed. Like we don't float. Like we're, you know, pastor just said, I struggle with fasting, but I'm committed because I love God. Okay, if you would like, this is why we've created all these resources. Like if you have not already, if you're like, man, John, I want to do it. Like I want to love God with our, my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to do it. Great. Text prayer to this number. We will give you a reminder every single day. We'll send you a devotional if you're like, I don't even know what I would do with additional time with God. We got that covered too. We'll give you a whole format that you could follow that's been deeply thought out and saturated and bathed in prayer. We would, we'll do anything possible to help you grow in your relationship with God. I don't quite know what to do. Talk to your microchurch leader. Talk to people in your microchurch. I'm not in a microchurch. We'll help you find one. We'll find a group in your area. We'll help you connect. Anything we could do to help you become a passionate follower of Jesus, it's literally why we exist. All you gotta do is ask. When we love God with all of our mind, we experience a layered maturity and a depth of understanding. But again, if we only love God with our mind, this is a trap we can fall into when we experience a cold Phariseeism and dead religion. Are you guys beginning to see the genius of Jesus in his multifaceted call to love? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength say it with me love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength every single component and fiber of your being is important because god has wired you that way and he loves it and you're created to love god with all your heart soul mind and finally strength this word biblically is iskus Iskus. It means the executive power and force of the entire body. Our strength is the ability, force, or power we exert in loving God. When we love God with all of our strength, we persevere. I would argue this is one of the biggest challenges of our current cultural moment. We live in a culture of quitting. Where if things are hard, difficult, or challenging, you quit. Marriage is hard, you quit. Friendships get dicey, you don't go talk to them, you quit. Relationships get severed, you just unfollow. 
Job is tough, you just quiet quit. You don't say anything. We, we live in an age where we're loving out of strength and persevering under trials is no longer valued and yet God says it matters to him, which it means it matters to us if we're his disciples. When we love God with all our strength, we persevere through trials, relationships, and worldly condemnation. Now, obviously, there are unhealthy relational dynamics, and I'm not speaking of those, but the normal challenges and friction that life brings, the call is to love God with all of our strength. Ephesians 6 says it like this, finally be strong in the Lord. You ever wondered what that meant? It's what that means persevere, endure by the grace that God gives you, striving according to his working that works in you mightily. Don't back out. Don't just quit. Don't throw in the towel like Kayla eloquently called us to at the beginning of service. Love God. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. When we love God with all of our strength, we experience a race finished well, and we are able to live life to establish a path as a role model for others to follow. But when we only love God with our strength. And I hope you see the paradigm I'm trying to lay out here. When we only love God with our strength, we can experience graceless striving and burnout. Anybody been there before? Hence, Jesus's genius wisdom. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pastor John, just simplify it for me. What am I supposed to do? I love him. Great. Then love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if indeed all of these facets of love are key to becoming fluent in being a God seeker, if it's love and not just willpower, it is worth a self-assessment like this. In your mind's eye, as you consider your life, where is your love for God strong? Heart, soul, mind, strength. On the flip side of that coin, where is your love for God characteristically weak? Heart, mind, soul, or strength. I'm asking these questions because I think it is apropos in the moment that we sit in where we're about to go into a time where we might be saying no to some earth satisfaction things and removing distractions and additional yeses to God with our time where we might get more traction in this season than we've gotten in years or decades if we play our cards right. And then lastly, what, what could it look like to grow in love in all of these areas, heart, mind, soul, and strength, especially the areas that we're weak in. Now, let me give you all a little spiritual cheat sheet. There are people in your microchurch that are strong in the areas you're weak. Ask them that question. This is where our competitive nature actually sabotages us in regard to spirituality. God has designed us to be spiritually collaborative, but our egos often get in the way. You've got people in your microchurch, like microchurch leaders, this might be a great exercise to just sit down and, and encourage people to do this inventory with your group or on their own, bring it to the group, and then say, hey, who, who's strong in heart? Man, that's my thing. Okay, can you please talk to us about that? Because some of us struggle in this area. Who's strong in the mind? You've got a few people. Every single person, I bet, there's going to be someone in your group that has an area of strength where you're weak. And rather than feel bad or jealous of them, you can learn from them. And as a result, 
We all get built up, edified, strengthened together. It's almost like that's God's vision for his people. Oh, wait. It is. Over the course of the past almost 20 years now, we have documents we've created. They're called our core documents. If you've been through Activate, we're about to do another round with the Connection Lunch. It's on our app, but I want to read to us some of these words that have been crafted over the course of almost two decades, and as I've been a part of Greenhouse for almost that entire period of time, 17, almost 18 years now, things that we genuinely are trying to live out. I want to read them to you afresh. And God, I'm asking that by your spirit, you would spark our hearts with first love, passion, and devotion to seek your face. Here we go. Father, we are a movement of the first love. This is from our first virtue in the core docs. The first command is our first priority. Love the Lord, your God. Your face, O Lord, we will seek. Our deep desire is not ministry growth or success. Father, we want you. Whatever we do in ministry, may it be the result of this experiment. What happens when a group of people set apart their lives to seeking your face? The outgrowth of that then is to seek the lost, the least, in the true church. But this is our ultimate dream, to participate in ministry defined by its pursuit of you so that it is very clear, you alone are glorious. This is first, primary, the center. So we pray for harvest, innovation, leadership, supernatural provision, gifts of the spirit, creativity, powerful sermons, inspired Bible studies, unity, resources, divine appointments, expanded vision, physical strength, open doors, management excellence, protection, incredible times of worship. But what we want most is you, to know you, to be found in you. We want to do what we do, not out of an achiever need to accomplish nor a competitor's need to win, but because, not because it's what everybody else is doing or because nobody else has done it yet. We want to live the natural outgrowth of our relationship, intimacy, and friendship with you. Thus, our main thing is not leadership or preaching. It is seeking you. This is our life. We are God seekers. The need of our day is not another successful church. The need is a work characterized by you, not by business principles, hard work, and natural talent. We seek you. We are defined by you. Your face, O oh Lord, we will seek. Church, this is our call. This is who we are. This is who we long to be. This is not some newfangled iteration and innovation because it's a new year. This is 20-year-old stuff that I'm calling us to afresh because it's who we are. And it's who we long to be. You're like, all right, cool. If it's, if it's gonna happen... If we're going to truly establish a lifestyle of being fluent in God's seeking and seeking God's face and seeking him first and seeking him most to, to the beginning of our time together, it will not be done through willpower. It's going to take what? Love. But what if the love is not there? We're going to culminate our time here asking God to stir our love for him. How do you find deep love for God when there is none currently? Do, do we just muster it up? Do we just guilt trip ourselves and like, just love God more? Why can't I? Like, how, how do we stir love for God where there is none currently? It's a real problem. Or, or maybe there used to be, but it's, it's growing or it, it has gone cold. And this is the beauty of the gospel. First John 4 says it like this. 
We love him. Because why? He first loved us. Our love for God is not a pioneering approach to life. It is simply a response. We love him because he first loved us. Which means if you reverse engineer that, how do you grow in love for God? You get more deeply in touch with his love for you. Because we love him because he first loved us. During this time of prayer, consecration, and fasting over these next 10 days as we start on Wednesday, I want to call us to deeply meditating on his love for you. If you're struggling with love for God, start with his love for you. Psalm 139 is an incredible passage to meditate on. Romans chapter eight would be another great spot to plant yourself. The entire book of 1 John would be a great book to be in during this time of consecration, prayer, and fasting. This week I came on a story of a father growing up with his kids. His name's Dave Simmons. He wrote a book called Dad the Family Coach. He sort of dedicated his life to helping people, individuals, fathers, especially, create thriving emotional and spiritual environments for their children. He's a grandpa now, but he tells the story of back when his kids were young, and he said, I remember going to the mall, and this is back when, like, they were actually making money. He said, I went to this mall, and there was a Sears. You remember that store back then? He said, I went to the Sears, and, and as we were getting there, my daughter, his daughter Helen, I think her name was, was eight, and yeah, his son David was five. He said, we, we're, we're pulling up to the mall. We get out. We're, I'm walking into Sears, and they had like a petting, a mobile petting zoo. He lived out in the Midwest. Apparently, that was the thing. They had a mobile petting zoo. He's like, and so my kids are like, please, Dad, can we do it? And it cost a quarter. That's how you know how old the story is. So he's like, okay, cool. So he gives them both a quarter, and he's like, man, honestly, I was just pumped to go in there and get some new saw, and he's like, I'll be able to focus my time and energies. Apparently, you just left kids alone to just like figure that stuff out. Definitely a different planet. This is what he said. He said, a few minutes later, I was perplexed to find my daughter, Helen, walking along behind me. I was sort of in shock to see that she preferred the hardware department to the petting zoo. Recognizing this interesting dynamic, I bent over and asked her what was wrong. She looked up at me with her big brown eyes and said, sadly, well, dad, it actually cost 50 cents. So I gave my brother, Brandon, my quarter. She then said the most beautiful thing I had ever heard. She repeated our family motto, love is action. She had given Brandon, her brother, her quarter, and no one loves cuddly creatures more than my girl, Helen. She had watched for years around the house and our ranch as we live and say things over and over. Love is action. Love is action. She had seen it in different ways and scenarios, and now she had incorporated it into her little lifestyle. It had become a part of her. So what do you think I did? He says, well, not what you think. As soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo. We stood by the fence and we watched her brother Brandon go crazy, petting and feeding all the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence, just watching. I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket, but I never offered it to Helen and she never asked for it. Because she knew the whole family motto. The whole family motto was not love is action. It was love is sacrificial action. 
We had spent time building out a framework for love. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, the benefit accrues to another's account. Love is for you and not for me. Love gives. It doesn't grab. Helen had given her quarter to her brother Brandon and wanted to follow through with her lesson entirely. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. And she wanted to experience the total family motto. Love is sacrificial action. And as I read this story, I could not help think about God and us. In a culture of pleasure where indulgence is the MO, it really begs a question, what kind of crazy person intentionally chooses sacrifice? Why in the world would you do that? Why would you actively posture yourself in advance to sacrifice? What in the world are you thinking? And it's because, friends, we remember, we remember him. How and why would we sacrificially love God? Because we are remembering that he sacrificially loved us first. It's the gospel. How and why would we say no to other pleasures? Because we remember what he's done. We remember his grace. We remember his goodness. We remember his love. We remember his mercy. We remember his patience. And so fasting, although difficult, is worth it. And sacrifice, although difficult, is worth it. And saying no to lesser pleasures, although difficult and painful at times, is worth it. And getting up early in the morning for morning prayer when you'd rather be with Pastor Pillow than Pastor John and JC is worth it. Because love is sacrificial action and no greater love has someone than this to lay down his life for his friends. And so we decide, heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we dedicate and sacrifice our life and our time and our energies for him because he sacrificially came in pursuing us. And so we dedicate our lives to becoming fluent as God seekers in seeking him because he gave his life in seeking us. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, I long to grow in this area for the rest of my life. I want to be more passionate about you 10 years from now that I am right now and I want to be more passionate for you in my 70s than I was in my 60s and I want to be burning for you in my 80s if you give me that long way more than I was in my 20s I want to continue to grow in passion and fervor and deep love for you and I know that's only going to come as I spend time with you and allow our relationship to mature and deepen Lord would you make me would you help us to become fluent as those who seek your face where we make the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, our first priority as evidenced by our lives and the way we structure our time, energy, and resources. Lord, we seek you first.